Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. A triple homicide. In all my years of prosecuting, I've only had a handful of triple homicides to investigate and take to trial. And I can tell you why they all go to trial. Because who's going to sign up for either the death penalty or three consecutive life sentences, one after the next? They might as well roll the dice and hope they get a weak jury. But think about it, a triple homicide, a single homicide, crime scene is awful enough, devastating, jarring. It sticks with you forever. But a triple homicide, especially under these circumstances? I'm Nancy Grace. This is Crime Stories. Thank you for being with us here at Fox Nation and Sirius XM 111. A triple homicide. But what, if anything, does sex have to do with it? First of all, take a listen to this. Tonight we begin with breaking news out of Okmulgee County. The sheriff's office is investigating a triple homicide north of Beggs. Two works for you's Tatiana Taylor is on the scene with the latest information. Tatiana. It's still an active scene right now. I'm here about a mile away from the home where three people were found dead. Police are still behind me blocking the road. And right now, information is still scarce at this time. But sheriff deputies tell us it happened around three this afternoon in a rural neighborhood north of Beggs on Lake Ridge Drive. At this time, we don't know the cause of deaths or the three victims' names. The triple homicide is still being investigated, but we will continue to keep you updated online as we receive more information about what happened today. Hearing just that bit of information is setting off all sorts of alarms in my head, red flags waving at me like I'm a bull in a stadium. The matador would be the killer. With me, an all-star panel making sense of what we know right now. First of all, high-profile lawyer joining us from Jacksonville, Dale Carson. He's not just a lawyer. He's a former Fed with the FBI, and he's an author of Arrest Proof Yourself. You can find him at dalecarsonlaw.com. Dr. Jory Crosen, psychologist, faculty, St. Leo University, consultant with the Blue Wall Institute, and author of Operation SOS. Joseph Scott Morgan, professor of forensics, Jacksonville State University, author of Blood Beneath My Feet on Amazon, and star of a new hit series, Body Bags, with Joe Scott Morgan, on iHeart. Dale Carson, am I wrong, or were all three of the victims, who were all adults, they were all asleep, correct? That's right. They were asleep until the rounds started going off, and then they, two of them tried to hide in closets in order to protect themselves. And one probably couldn't do anything. Um, guys, take a listen to our friends at KFOR News 4. Investigators say two mass suspects were seen on security cameras outside the rural home. Minutes later, the electricity is cut. Reports say while the family slept, suspects kicked in the door and shot them to death one by one. Documents say Evelyn Chandler suffered mentally and physically before the 69-year-old was shot to death. 
As the suspects, quote, began firing gunshots, striking and killing her husband, Jack Randall Chandler, as she attempted to hide from the intruders, seeking refuge in her closet. Icor was also tortured and abused before she was killed because the 43-year-old, quote, heard intruders enter the home she shared with her parents and began firing gunshots, striking and killing her parents. The dichotomy of such a brutal triple homicide in such a rural area seemingly with low crime is very disturbing. To Levi Page, where exactly exactly is Beggs, Oklahoma? So Beggs, Oklahoma is a small town in Okamulgee County, Oklahoma, and that is about an hour and a half east of Oklahoma City. So the nearest big city is an hour and a half away. So this is a very small town, very quiet, not something where you would see these horrific triple homicides occur regularly. Someone coming in in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. when they know everybody is asleep, kicking in the door and opening fire to Levi Page, CrimeOnline.com investigative reporter, I have not learned anything about a theft, a burglary, a robbery, or a sex crime. Is that correct? You're correct, Nancy. Um, The only evidence was that the door of the home was kicked in. We know that there was a ball cap left at the scene, but there was nothing stolen. Uh, Shell casings indicated that it was by two different weapons, and that's all that investigators had when they discovered this horrific murder scene. You're giving me a flashback, Levi Page. You said a single ball cap was found at the scene. What kind of ball cap? Uh, We don't know what kind it was. We just know that uh, uh, a cap uh, looked like a male cap was left uh, at the scene in the driveway. Cap left at scene in driveway. You know, uh, Dale Carson, high-profile lawyer joining us out of Jacksonville, it reminds me very much of a case that I had to retry. The original case occurred when I was in law school, the murder and the attempted murder and rape. And by the time I had graduated law school, been a fed for three years, got finally with the DA's office and had prosecuted for a year or so, I was asked to retry the case after it was reversed on appeal and sent back down for retrial by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, all we had was, an when I tried to find in the evidence room the property that was left behind from the case, we had one x-ray and one baseball cap that said, kiss my bass. That cap later became very, very important because a guy had been spotted with a stolen ATM card nearby on the video wearing the Kiss My Bass hat. And then the hat was found at the scene, just like this. So Dale Carson, a baseball cap may seem unimportant or innocuous, but in cases like these, you got a triple homicide, you don't have a rape, you're not going to get DNA, Nothing was stolen, so it's not going to be hawked, and you'll trace them through a pawn shop. That hat could be very important. I mean, how do I know it's not going to be on a McDonald's drive through video 30 minutes before, one of the 24-hour ones, if there's one in the area? I mean, 
Who knows what you can learn from that hat? Well, and more than that, today we get DNA from the sweatband of the hat. And here is another critical point. Someone tried to remove the rounds that were fired to kill these people, put them in a hat, and like many criminals, left it at the scene when they're in a rush to depart. So that's all part of this. Why would they try to hide the kind of rounds that were used by taking the casings with them? Why did that happen? And, you know, Joe Scott Morgan, enter the scene, Joe Scott, because that is what you and I love to dissect, is staging. Why would someone gather up the, the the shell casing. Yeah, and that is because there are specific identifiers. And let me tell you what the calibers were, Nancy. We've got what is called a 5.56 millimeter round, which is fired generally from what's referred to as uh, an M4 platform, which is kind of a military weapon that our, our troops use. High velocity round. Mm-hmm. And then you've got nine millimeter rounds, which are most commonly fired from a handgun, generally semi-automatic. So you've got these rounds that are being ejected all over the place. And, you know, the perpetrators would have, first off, they came prepared or perpetrator. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, when you've got two weapons, you want to make sure that you're getting the job done. I don't like the way that just rolled off your tongue. <laughs> well, that's the way we, you know, Get unfortunately, as investigators, done. we kind of have to inhabit the, the brains of these people many don't times. Don't stay too long. Yeah, I try not to. Uh, And when, you know, to Dale's point, not just DNA, but, you know, the shell casings, they're brass, Nancy. And so that means that means that they are a non-porous surface. And what can happen is as these individuals, assuming they're not wearing gloves, are picking up these rounds and spent casings and placing them in a ball cap, for instance, Mm -hmm. they are actually leaving latent prints behind on the sides of these casings. So if you can recover DNA... And you can recover a uh, recover a latent print. Uh, sometimes that can that can be a, a winning shot, a grand slam. Either one, either one of those would work yep. for me. Now, yep. explain, Joe Scott, how you are stating that fingerprints. I hate to put too much information out there because now mm-hmm. perps are going to be wiping off the shelves <laughs> as they load them or do it with gloves. But explain how prints can be found. On ammo. Yeah, on ammo particularly. Uh, it, it's it's done, and let me tell you, you know, you see you see these images on the news mm-hmm. and in TV shows and whatnot where they're dusting for prints on surfaces. Mm-hmm. That's not how this works, not with rounds like this. What's going to happen is that these rounds will be carefully packaged and taken back. Whoa, uh, wait a the, minute. Mm-hmm. Carefully packaged, explain. Don't carefully leave packaged. anything out. <laughs> well, what do you mean but, carefully packaged? How do they do it when you're trying to pick up a gun sh- a casing or shell? You don't want to mess up the fingerprint that could be on it, a partial. No, you don't. And and you have to be very, very careful. The the upside, the upside with a if you're trying to recover a spent casing mm-hmm. um, is that it actually has a hole where the projectiles actually come out of. You can pick it up interiorly. You know, you can take like a pencil or you can take, for instance, uh, Imagine uh, picking a up rod. a toilet paper roll, roll with yeah, that's a, good point. a pen. Yeah. You reach into the spent cartridge like that and pick it up. And you, you never have to touch the exterior of the spent casing at all. So you, you package it 
And then once it's sealed up, maintaining that chain of evidence, as you know, you take it to the lab and then you process it at that moment in time. Now you can go down two different roads with this. You can either dust it mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, famously we can, uh, use super glue fuming where we put it into a case, heat up super glue. And as that super glue that has essentially uh, clouded up in this environment begins to settle back down because of gravity, it will actually fall on to the surface of this brass area. And remember, Fingerprints are generated from what's called fatty lipid acids on the surface of this brass. And that, that, that histamized uh, fingerprint, that uh, histamized uh, superglue will actually fuse, fuse to the exterior of that brass. And it will stay there forever and ever. Amen. You're not going to get rid of it. And you can actually appreciate the ridge detail, okay, wait, all the minutiae. You're saying, and, and this is the method when it, if it comes to ammunition, which is so small and you've got a chance of getting a partial print. Yeah, partial is Which, which key. <laughs> would still work. Yes, so it get, would. I mean, hey, it's better than nothing. You could get yeah. a partial print off that tiny piece of evidence. I absolutely advise the super glue method, which means you put the bullets uh, into a closed container with the super glue opened, and the chemicals in the super glue attach to to my understanding, the human oils from the fingers yes. still on the, the ammo, yes. and it sticks to it. It will never yeah. come off. Super will glue never. will never come off. And then you take it out with a pair of tweezers and you can get that partial print. It's awesome. Yeah. Isn't the yeah. isn't that incredible? Yes, it is. And it, it will stay there forever and ever. Amen. And, you know, how many times have you and I been to evidence rooms that are just so funky and nasty and yeah. dirty and you lose evidence in those environments with the super gluing uh it binds it's a binder you're not gonna happens. lose that crime stories with nancy grace Well, we're talking about casings found in this cap. Other things found at the scene of a triple homicide. The victims, Tiffany Icor, Jack Chandler, and Evelyn Chandler, Tiffany's parents. They're all dead. Take a listen to our friends at KJRH. Deputies were called to a home on Lakeview Circle Road in Banks after a relative found the bodies of Jack Chandler, his wife Kay, and their daughter, Tiffany Icor. All three victims had been shot multiple times with at least two different caliber of weapons. It was those shell casings and DNA found in a cap at the scene that helped investigators build their case. In further processing of the crime scene, it was discovered that the residence was equipped with a digital video surveillance system. Investigators say the video showed two people arrive, park in the road, then walk to the house. Dr. Jory Carlson, psychologist, faculty, St. Leo University, author, consultant. Dr. Jory, multiple shots on each victim, two assailants. Uh Uh-uh, no, this was not about rape. This was not about robbery. What do you make of multiple gunshots on each victim? They didn't want to make sure they were just dead. They wanted to make sure they were dead three or four times over. Yeah, looking at the behavior, you know, this is definitely a planned attack. 
so, you know, and it's a family. So one of them or all of them had some connection to this behavior. Uh, the, the interesting thing with those two shots is that. You mean connection to the triple homicide perps? I wouldn't really call that behavior, but, but go ahead. Well, that's the way psychologically I look at everything as behavior because ah, okay. that's the, the manifestation of their psychological mindset. Okay. The, going along with that were both individuals, the two shooters, they both contributed in each body. Okay. So they're both responsible for deaths or attacks. So there was a commitment, some kind of bond between these two assailants. Two. Oh, so a bond between the two assailants, the killers, and a connection to at least one of the three dead people. Because, I mean, just yes. common sense, uh, they're not going to go in and shoot one person and then be identified by the other two. <clears throat> and we heard it. Yeah, the, the other two could be just collateral damage that have to be eliminated. Right. And we also heard that one of the victims heard the gunshots, and tried to go hide in the closet. I mean, Dr. Jory Cross, and it's everybody's nightmare that your your family's under attack and you're, somebody's hiding in the closet, and then they open the closet door. It's straight out of a horror film. Yes. I, I would imagine the, the male would be the first subject to be taken out because this was planned. You know, they probably did some homework on this, knowing who the assailant or the, who their victims were, mm -hmm. so he would be eliminated first. And then the other two just have to be, like I say, they're witnesses. They've got to be eliminated also. Dale Carson, I heard you jumping in. What is it? First off, the electricity's off, so these individuals... Well, I'm glad you reminded me of that. Electricity cut. Go ahead. You know, then there's no light. So you have to have a flashlight if you're going to find those rounds. And if we know when you fire a semi-automatic weapon... You don't know, ever know where those expended cartridge cases are going to go. So that means you got a lot of time. They figured this out. They have time, and mm -hmm. so they can crawl around looking for those rounds that they put in that cap that was later discovered because they left it at the scene. That's really interesting. The way you said that, Dale Carson, it's making me think about uh, and analyze what really happened step by step. I imagine them crawling around looking for the spent cartridge shell. And, hey, Joe Scott, let me bring you in because the first time I realized the significance of the spent shell location, um, it was the DA, my boss, Mr. Slayton, longest-serving district attorney in the country at that time. I think it was 37 years. Loved him deeply, like a grandfather to me. I heard him call me over the loudspeaker. Come to my office. I'm like, so I ran, and I've told you, I specifically turned down a really nice office for one right by the stairwell. So I didn't want to waste time going away on an elevator. I ran down the stairwell to get to his office, and he handed me a file and said, I want you to look into this. That's all he said. Turned out a friend of his that he had started law practice with many years before, daughter had committed suicide, grown daughter. So I went to the scene, and the medical examiners had taken very, they have their own investigators, had taken very careful measurements from the bed to the shell cartridge in, from the wall. They were taking very minute measurements. Why? To make sure it was a, a suicide. Well, it was not a suicide. 
because at the crime lab, when we put the sheets up against the light, you could see blood spatter under her pillow where she was laying when she reported it. And there's, that would be impossible because she's laying on the pillow. The point is, cartridge shell casings can bounce around. Yeah, they can. Yeah. But they can, they can also give you a little bit of an idea where the shooter was at the time of the shooting. Yeah, to to a certain degree, yeah. you know, to to Dale's point, it's real dynamic in this environment. It depends on what kind of surface they strike too when they because they can bounce like like nuts all over the place. And there's one big linkage here I think that's real important that Dale brought up, Nancy, and this is striking to me. The electricity was cut. Yes. And the fact and the fact that the electricity was cut gives me as an investigator an indication that whoever felt well first off you got to feel comfortable with taking out the electricity but secondly and most importantly this idea that the electricity is off means that the individuals that were involved in this case had a real level of comfort in this environment that they would be able to walk in to a darkened environment unless of course they've got you know night vision equipment which i doubt they did and move around in the darkness. That means that you have to know specifically where you're going. And in your mind, you, you might even be counting steps. Okay, I know where this person's bedroom is. I know where this person's bedroom is. And you're creeping down the hallway. Now, of course, they're, maybe they've got flashlights. But again, it goes to comfort in this environment. Because if you feel real unsafe about an environment, what's the first thing you do when you walk into Turn a darkened area? Yeah. Guys, take a listen to our friend Abby Broyles, KFOR4. The murder mystery in Okmulgee County could be coming down to a footprint. On this day, we now know investigators went back inside Harris's home to get a pair of boots. Officers believe they could match a footprint from the murder scene. It's been over a month since Jack and Evelyn Chandler, along with their daughter Tiffany Icor, were found murdered in their home near Beggs. Talk about forensics, a possible boot print. But now, out of the blue, a bizarre twist. Take a listen to our cut to KFOR. Attorney David Bedford, the former law partner of Keegan Harrow's, he told me he had concerns about Harrow's and one of her clients and took his concerns to the Bar Association and District Attorney's Office months ago. David Bedford says investigators from the Okmulgee County Sheriff's Office came to talk to him on Friday about the triple homicide near Beggs and this woman, attorney Keegan Harrows. Bedford and Harrows previously had a relationship and practiced law together. Bedford had concerns about Harrows and her boyfriend and client, a man with a violent record, and reported his concerns to the bar and the DA. Her client is charged in a domestic abuse case in Oklahoma County. The victim, Tiffany Icor. Icor and her parents, Jack and Evelyn Chandler, were found dead inside the Chandler's home on September 7th. Bedford says investigators showed him a video of two people believed to be involved in the murders. Bedford said he couldn't tell who was in the video. Then he says investigators asked him if they knew where they could find Keegan Harrows. Okay, let me understand this. Levi Page, out of the blue, out of nowhere, after the triple homicides, an attorney, David Bedford, contacts authorities and he is concerned about a former law partner female keegan harrows he says he was concerned that harrows was in a relationship a sex relationship with a bad guy barry titus 
the second. Barry Titus the second had a domestic case with previous domestic case where he was going to be prosecuted for beating up Tiffany Icor, now dead. Did I get that right? Yes, Nancy, you're correct. Uh, Tiffany Icor, one of the victims, she was shot. Her body riddled with bullets. Investigators discovered that she met Barry Titus on the dating app Tinder, and she started a relationship with him. And she said a month into the relationship, things went haywire. She went through hell, that he would abuse her, kick her, strangle her, and that he would strangle her as a way to what he said, test her. Well, he strangled her to, quote, test her? Yes, to see how tough she was. Okay, so I want to get back to this lawyer. So she is now in a relationship with the strangler. She represented him on those charges. She represented Barry, Barry Titus on those charges. Okay. So concerning that her former law partner calls the cops about their sex relationship when he hears about the triple homicide. Okay. So now that her former boyfriend and law partner calls the cops on her, the cops make a visit. Take a listen to our friends at KFOR 4. The murder mystery in Okmulgee County could be coming down to a footprint. On this day, we now know investigators went back inside Harris's home to get a pair of boots. Officers believe they could match a footprint from the murder scene. It's been over a month since Jack and Evelyn Chandler, along with their daughter Tiffany Icor, were found murdered in their home near Beggs. Cops then continue their search. They are now focused on the relationship this female lawyer has with Icorn's previous abuser. Take a listen to our friends at KFOR. As we reported, Harris's boyfriend, Barry Titus, used to be in a relationship with Tiffany Icor, and Icor had a domestic abuse case against Titus in Oklahoma County. His attorney in that case, Keegan Harris. A new search warrant shows the two claimed to be married. They've been living here in northwest Oklahoma City, where investigators took the GPS data from her SUV last week. They also seized another cell phone that was not at her home the last time they raided it. So let me understand. Levi Page, she represented him in the previous domestic assault that the victim brought against him. That's how they met? You're correct. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. It wouldn't be the first time a lawyer or some other person, a civilian, goes into the penitentiary and falls in love with an inmate. Take a listen to our cut 10, our friends at ABC. Today, Joyce Tilly Mitchell in stripes, shackles, and tears, pleading guilty to helping the two murderers escape. She was swept off her feet a bit uh, for a period, and then when she realized who she was dealing with, everything changed. In newly released statements, Mitchell describes a deepening friendship with inmate Richard Matt. Quote, he treated me with respect and was nice to me, she says. He made me feel special. That relationship 
turning sexual. Inmate Matt grabbed me and kissed me. Mitchell also admits sending naked pictures to the other prisoner, David Sweat, telling police Matt told her we were all going to be together. She got in over her head into something that she never should have started. But she did, and uh, she's paying the price. Mitchell admits smuggling hacksaw blades, chisels, a punch tool, and a screwdriver to the prisoners, hiding them inside frozen hamburger meat. Matt giving her two pills to drug her husband Lyle on the day of the escape. They referred to Lyle as the glitch. They talked about her husband as the glitch? Now, wait a minute. Jackie, did I just hear that she said... He cheated me with respect. Didn't they have sex in the closet? They did. Okay, you know, I think I need a shrink. Dr. Jory Crossan, help me out. This is a seamstress with a happy marriage. And then she she's a seamstress in the jail. Then she falls for these guys, convicted felons. They're having sex in the closet, and she's sending nudie pics. Apparently that's what happened, and it seems like, I mean, you know, there's vulnerability there. Wait. Swept off her feet? How do you get swept off your feet? He certainly didn't whine and dine her. Maybe he gave her a cup of pruno that he made uh, under his bunk. What? How can you get swept off your feet by a convict? Yeah, you know, most convicts are very smooth talkers. They're mm. very manipulative. You know, that's part of their uh, personality, their criminal profile personality. Uh, that's their tr- trade craft is to be able to talk and manipulate people. And especially, you know, they recognize victims and the type of victims. And this woman seemed to have vulnerabilities that were just capitalized, you know, by them. Well, she's not the only one that seems to Joyce Mitchell. Take a listen to our Cut 12, our friends at CBS 6 Richmond. Now, roughly five years later, Tapper faces charges for allegedly giving an inmate at the Riverside Regional Jail a cell phone and drugs. The Commonwealth's attorney in Prince George says it happened in December and that the case remains under investigation. While nearly all documents related to the case are sealed and the prosecutor declined to name the inmate, Crime Insider sources tell CBS 6 Tapper did visit one inmate hundreds of times in jail, smuggled him drugs, and even had sex with him behind bars. Dale Carson, no offense to all the men on the panel today. But my grandmother used to say, men are like buses. There'll be a new one in 15 minutes. Don't get crazy. So why do you have to go behind bars to have sex with a convict? Well, you know, part of this is that when you're a defense attorney, you've got to adopt that uh, defendant's position in order to effectively argue it in court. And that makes a connection between people that wouldn't ordinarily exist. And many lawyers have no experience with the real criminal element. And as a result, they're not aware of their proclivity for manipulation. Woo! Hey, I just want you to hear something before you say one more word, Dale Carson. I want you to hear about the guy behind bars that she fell for. This is who he really is. Take a listen to our cut nine. Andrew Roberts is a convicted killer found guilty of the deaths of his wife, Louise Lum, and eight-month-old daughter, Tia, at their home. Roberts was just 22 at the time. He strangled both while high on a cocktail of drink and drugs. Roberts sprayed the victims' bodies with perfume and aftershave to mask the smell, and then left the residence to carry on partying. Authorities captured him five days later. He was sentenced to two life terms. Thank you, Tyler, at Crime Online, for that information. So this guy, Andrew Roberts, who killed his wife and eight-month-old daughter, Tia, 
then sprayed them with aftershave perfume to, to mask the smell so he could go ahead and party. And that's who she fell in love with. Well, no offense to women, but sometimes people like a bad boy, and that clearly is a bad boy. Oh, really? So you're blaming the women. Of course, yeah, I'm blaming them too. But what about all those saps that are sending Jody Arias money and love notes and want to marry her behind bars? Hey, it's not just women. So wake up and smell the coffee, Dale Carson. Uh, let me just give you one more tiny example. Gosh, there's so many to pick from. Let's go with uh, our cut 14, our friends at WPTZ. Listen. In fall of 2015, Denise Prell was hired by the Department of Corrections and Community Supervision, or DOCS. She was a supervisor in the tailor shop. Hired around the same time, former prison seamstress Joyce Mitchell was sentenced for her role in the 2015 escape. Fast forward to spring 2016, Prell was transferred to tailor shop 5, where she met an inmate. That's where the two tell police their love story started. A similar situation to the one that sparked the infamous love triangle leading to the 2015 prison break. The inmate is quoted in court documents saying the two fell in love. They say they started writing letters to each other under the alias Gwen Freeman. Gwendolyn is Prell's middle name. Freeman was in reference to the inmate eventually becoming a free man. Then it turned to phone calls. The documents say Prell sending the inmate at $350. The inmate tells police that the two were planning on living with each other once he's released from prison. So it looks like lightning does strike twice. At the same location, another affair with a different inmate and another woman brought into the tailor shop. So, you know, I could go on and on and on. I've got so many cases of women going behind bars for whatever legitimate reason, falling in love having sex with the inmate behind bars, and then suddenly they're helping them bust out of jail. Now, in this case, however, the case of Tiffany Icor and both her parents, Jack and Evelyn, it was much more than a jailbreak. We now have three dead bodies on our hands. I've given you a little peek at the charming guys these women are meeting behind bars Let's take a look at who this lawyer, Keegan Harris, in her 30s, her whole life ahead of her, a well-known lawyer. This is who she falls for behind bars. Take a listen to our friends at Crime Online. Tiffany Icor meets Barry Titus on the dating app Tinder. Just a month into the relationship, Icor reports to police that Titus kicks her, hits her, and strangles her as a way to test her. She says Titus also introduced Icor to meth and heroin. Two months later, Titus beats Icor so severely she's in the hospital for days. Her injuries include cracked ribs, a lacerated river, lacerated kidney, and bruises on her arms, legs, stomach, and neck. Icor tells police that when she passes out during the beatings, Titus wakes her by pouring water on her, then strangles her again until she passes out. Police try to charge Titus, but Icor refuses to cooperate. Three months later, it happens again. A witness calls police saying that Titus is beating Icor, but Icor refuses to cooperate. Jessica Morgan, Professor of Forensics. 
How do you get a lacerated liver? Oh, it, it, it arises specifically from blunt force trauma, Nancy. And that means that you put a fist in there, uh, you kick, um, you can drive your shoulder into somebody. Um, we see lacerated livers many times uh, actually in car accidents. So that, that gives you an idea as to the amount of force that's applied. You know, many hmm. times, Nancy, when you're talking about abuse victims, they can have a laceration to either the spleen or the liver, which are kind of parallel to one another in, in the cavity. Uh, but there won't be any kind of external insult. You won't see many times, uh, you won't see an overlying contusion. Sometimes you will, but not every like single that? time. Are you saying a bruise? You don't see a bruise? <laughs> well, you know, it's just kind of my vernacular, but yeah. So a bruises. contusion is a bruise? Yes, a okay, contusion is a bruise. Okay, hold on just a, a moment before yeah. you go too, too deep uh, into that. I want to talk, bring us back to the victim, Tiffany Icor. She's taking these horrible, horrible beatings at the hands of the new boyfriend, Barry Titus II. She's too afraid to press charges but finally she does take a listen hour cut 70 tiffany icor did file charges against titus a few months later after cutting off contact with him and getting counseling after titus is arrested and charged with assault reports say someone left a package of white powder on icor's porch testing shows it's powdered sugar but police think someone is trying to intimidate or scare her a protective order is filed against titus a month later Records show his attorney for that case, the assault case, and unrelated charges in Cleveland County is Keegan Harrows. So enter Keegan Harrows. That's who's assigned to be his defense attorney. After this monstrous domestic beating where he nearly beats Tiffany Eichhorn dead, then tries to intimidate her by leaving I don't know what he was trying to pretend it was, but he left sugar in a, a container, I, I guess, to make her think it was some dangerous powder on her doorstep. But everything progresses rapidly. Take a listen to our friends at KFOR. You might remember the name Keegan Harris. She's an attorney caught up in a twisted love triangle. She was representing her boyfriend, Barry Titus, after his ex-girlfriend, Tiffany Icor, accused him of making threats to kill her and her family. Icor and her parents were later murdered by two masked killers at their home in Beggs. However, to this day, no charges have ever been filed. Law enforcement officials only saying Harris and Titus are connected to the case, but Harris took a plea deal for a federal weapons charge and served 24 months in prison. At that time, no arrests. The, the police investigators indicating that somehow the female attorney is connected to Barry Titus II. The case progresses. Take a listen to our friends at KFOR News 4. Court documents show state prosecutors believe Barry Titus and his Oklahoma City attorney turned lover, Keegan Harris, quote, should be punished by death. 
for the murders of Titus's ex-girlfriend, Tiffany Icor, and her parents, Jack and Evelyn Chandler. Before the love triangle formed, Icor accused 40-year-old Titus of threatening her family. She also had a pending domestic abuse case against him. Representing Titus was 38-year-old Harris. Reports say while the family slept, Titus and Harris kicked in the door and shot them to death one by one. The state alleges Icor was killed so Titus could, quote, avoid prosecution for the domestic assault case, adding Titus and Harris killed the Chandlers so they could get away with killing their daughter. A year and a half later, both Titus and Harris charged with three counts of first-degree murder and one burglary charge. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Let me understand. Levi Page, Crime Online. So the two figures seen on surveillance going into Tiffany Icor and her parents' home are not only, according to cops, Barry Titus II, but she, the female lawyer, under his spell goes with him, and together they gun down three people in their sleep so he won't have to answer up on Domrell, domestic relations attack? You're correct, Nancy. In the surveillance video, two masked figures approach the home one was tall, believed to be a man, and another was much shorter. We now know it was a female. And the hat that was found at the scene contained the DNA of Titus in it. The shell casings, they were traced back to an original owner who owned a shooting range. And he said that Barry Titus and his girlfriend, his attorney, Rose, purchased the gun there. And he said they also fired the gun there. And police got shell casings. And it matched the shell casings found at the triple homicide scene. Is it true the prosecutors are planning to seek the death penalty, Levi? That is correct, Nancy. They say that the victims suffered mental anguish, uh, mental torture, and extreme fear because of these attacks. Hiding in the closet waiting to die? We wait as justice unfolds. Nancy Gray's Crime Stories, signing off. Goodbye.